Welcome to the Divorce Podcast, a podcast that aims to address divorce, separation and co-parenting here in the UK, countering the often sensationalist way it's portrayed in the media, challenging the status quo and driving for reform. On each episode, I'm joined by experts to discuss divorce and separation and co-parenting from different angles and to give their opinions and to debate them. I'm Kate Daly, a relationship counsellor and divorce coach, co-founder of Amicable and host of The Divorce Podcast. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Amy Baker. Amy has a PhD in developmental psychology from Teachers College of Columbia University in the USA. And she is a researcher, author, and a nationally recognized expert in parent-child relationships, especially children of divorce. She's the author or co-author of over eight books and over 115 articles on parental alienation, co-parenting with toxic exes, and helping teenagers navigate their parents' divorce. She works as a coach to lawyers and mental health professionals, as well as continuing her academic research and working as an expert witness in courts. Welcome, Amy. Happy to be here. Amy, let's start with your background, if I may. How did you become an authority on parent and child relationships during divorce? Well, it really fits into the larger scope of my entire career, which is really focusing on promoting well-being in children, helping children navigate various difficult situations. I'm particularly interested in child abuse and preventing all forms of child abuse. And I do consider, it is really considered a form of child abuse at this point in our understanding of parental alienation for a parent to turn a child against the other parent. That's essentially what parental alienation is. That really is a form of child abuse. It harms the child's identity, their sense of who they are, you know, whether they are lovable, whether their parents love them. It's a very profound form of psychological maltreatment. So I got to it that way because I'm interested in all forms of child abuse. And just to describe a little bit about the boundary between, you know, two parents who perhaps aren't getting on and parental alienation. Right. So parental alienation is a very extreme form of when children get caught in their parents' divorce conflict. So when parents get divorced, it's normal. Most kids feel some tension, some, you know, uh, loyalty conflict. They love two people who no longer love each other. It is natural for children to feel some loyalty conflict. At the same time, children do better when they are loved and feel loved by both parents. And so, you know, my whole focus really is on helping parents and kids navigate the situation so that it doesn't evolve into parental alienation, which is when a parent engages in a host of behaviors that are so intensely felt by the child that the child will ally themselves with one parent against the other. And in severe cases of parental alienation, the child will completely cut off uh, one of their parents. And what sort of danger signs are there then to watch out for if you think you're hovering around that boundary between what is a standard set of feelings around a divorce for a child and something that's going further and becoming parental alienation? What what do you look out for? The warning sign that your child is becoming alienated is when they start to treat you in a way that is suspicious of your intentions 
in which they are reacting to you disproportionately to whatever you are doing. So if you serve broccoli for your child at dinner, they might not love it, but they don't think, oh, my mother hates me. She doesn't love me. She's unsafe. She's unavailable. She's trying to hurt me. Unless the other parent is manipulating your child to experience you as unsafe, unloving, and unavailable when that's not the case. So the warning sign is that your child is distorting your intentions based on an undue influence and a, a presumption that is being implanted in the child by the other parent. Don't trust your mother. She doesn't really love you. When she gives you broccoli, it means that she doesn't love you. Right. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You also mentioned that there were signs, you know, you can spot in your child and signs that you can spot in your ex. What are the signs that your ex may be alienating? Well, there are 17 behaviors that research shows are the behaviors that a parent can exhibit that can foster in the child the false belief that the other parent is unsafe, unloving, and unavailable. So one of the things that's so sort of heartbreaking for me in my work with parents is they contact me after their kid has, you know, cut them off or is treating them, you know, very harshly, coldly, et cetera. And the parent says, oh, now that I've seen the list of 17 behaviors, I realize that my ex has been doing these all along. I just didn't connect the dots. I didn't realize that when the other parent did X and Y and A and B and C, that that was all working together to foster in my child a distrust in who I am to that child. So yes, it's really important for parents to know what those 17 behaviors are. So A, you don't do it as a parent. You understand that these aren't small things. Oh, it's just this or just that. They can really damage the attachment between the child and the other parent. And you want to know what those behaviors are so that if you notice the other parent is doing it, you can try to address it with that other parent immediately, and you can be documenting it so that if you do need to go to court and you do need to show, you know, a therapist or a, a guardian or a judge what you think is going on, you will have evidence of it. And so just examples of those 17 behaviors, referring to you by your first name instead of referring to you as mom or dad to the child, getting rid of the pictures of you in the home obviously telling the child or conveying to the child that you are unsafe, that you don't really love the child, limiting uh, the child's time with you. So sort of coming early or picking up the child early or dropping off the child late or scheduling activities on your parenting time, asking the child to keep secrets of, you know, from you, asking the child to spy on you, anything that betrays your trust, that encourages the child to betray your trust is an example of one of those 17 behaviors. So you do have to know what they are. So you make sure you're not doing it and you are catching it when the other parent is doing it before your child becomes so alienated that you know they don't even want to be with you anymore. It's a lot easier to prevent or intervene than it is to treat a severe case of alienation. Just focusing on that prevention and intervention, then, what are the positive behaviors that parents can encourage between themselves when they find themselves in that co-parenting situation? What does your research show? Yeah, so this is really my favorite thing to talk about because it is focusing on the positive. And so 
there's so much, you know, obviously there's a lot of content. I spend hours and hours and hours thinking about this. You know, one thing is to ensure that you are always safe, loving and available with your child. So that's sort of the basic. And that actually is harder than it sounds because if you're in an alienation situation and the other parent is egging the child on to be provocative, to be rude, to be uncooperative, it's easy for parents in that situation to take the bait and become either depressed or demoralized or overly reactive and angry. And then the kid thinks, gee, mom's right, dad's a jerk, or gee, dad's right, mom's sad all the time. So you have to work extra hard as a parent in this situation to ensure that you are always kind and loving to your child. That does not mean giving your child everything your child wants. One of my favorite examples is, you know, if your child asks you for ice cream for breakfast, you could say, that's ridiculous. Who eats ice cream for breakfast? That's a who told you to do that? Did your other parent put you up to this? You know, you can come at it in a very, very negative way. The alternative is not getting out the bowl and scoop and giving your child ice cream for breakfast. The alternative is to say to your child, oh, don't you wish ice cream were a healthy breakfast choice? That would be so fun. You can have pancakes and waffles for breakfast and maybe there'll be time for ice cream later. So it's how you say no, how you talk to your child moment by moment, that makes a difference. And one of the things I say to parents going through this is, you know, most kids do not reject parents. But if you are in a high conflict divorce, which thankfully is not always the case, but if you are, and the other parent is undermining your child's trust in you, sense that you are safe, you don't have the luxury of saying to your child, that's ridiculous. Who eats ice cream for breakfast? Because you're reinforcing the lie that you are unloving. So you have to be, you know, the A++ parent. You don't get to say, that's ridiculous. Who eats ice cream for breakfast? You always have to find a way to stay connected. So if your child is talking to you in what you might find to be an unpleasant tone of voice, I don't think it makes sense to say to your child, you're being rude. So this is another one of my parenting strategies. I encourage parents not to use negative labels. That's rude. That's nasty. Who told you to talk that way? Go to your room until you can be polite. What I teach parents to say is sort of a three-step process. The first is to acknowledge and show that you care. So you would say to your child, let's say your child is yelling and cursing at you, which nobody likes. You would say, wow, you are really upset. I really want to understand what's going on. So that's the first step is to show that you care. You acknowledge your child is upset about something. You don't focus on the bad behavior. Then the second part is to describe in a neutral, non-shaming, non-blaming way what the child is doing that you're finding unpleasant. So you don't say, you know, that's so rude and disgusting and nasty of you. You would say, the tone of your voice is very loud. It's hurting my ears. Or you're using curse words at me and I find that unpleasant. So you describe in a just a neutral descriptive way what the child's doing that you don't like. And then you end with an invitation. Can you please say that again? Can you please tell me what's going on without cursing at me? Or can you please say it in a quieter tone of voice? So you're always prioritizing the connection with the child rather than 
focusing on what the child is doing that you don't like. So that's just an example of the kind of thing I work on with parents. I think it's really useful, a really fascinating example as well, because it's so difficult when you're going through a divorce to stay connected to your children when you've got so many other things going on, you're holding down a job, you're dealing with the divorce itself. I think many parents are really desperate to find some strategies that will work so that they they can stay, they can keep that connection. So thank you. There's a really good example. Yeah, I think what part of what's happening is the other parent is setting up the kid to bring out the worst in the targeted parent. And then the targeted parent inadvertently reinforces the lie and makes the lie a truth. And if the the lie is unsafe, unloving and unavailable. So you have that's your mantra, your your north star is always how can I be safe, loving and available? And be kind to myself. I'm a parent. You know, I don't want to be spit at. I'm a person. I don't want to be yelled at. I don't want to be, you know, talked to in a way that feels demeaning to me. So you have to find ways to give feedback to your child that don't demoralize the child or reinforce that you are um, unloving. Um, Let's go up the age bracket a little bit then, because one of the things that we deal with a lot and get a lot of questions around is what happens when children get a bit older and they go through that stage of not wanting to be with one parent or another? How can you deal with that as, uh, as parents together to make sure that those valuable links and time with the other parent, particularly if it's the non-resident parent, how do you reinforce that relationship and promote that relationship where you can't force anymore because they're 13, 14, 15 or whatever? So what are the, what are the tactics that you need to employ at that age? Well, I do believe that you can force. I don't believe, I I really am not, I I don't believe in any punishment, really. Like, I think there are ways to navigate most situations without invoking authority over a child. Mm -hmm. However, if you are the favored parent, the the parent that the child says, I want to be with you, I don't want to go visit dad this weekend, let's just say, Mm -hmm. unless the other parent is abusive, then you should be making your child spend time with that other parent. And for a parent to say, so, you know, again, I'm seeing sort of the hardcore cases, right, where there's really a lot of conflict for a parent to say, I can't make my child go. What am I going to do? Strap them to the roof of the car? You know, that really doesn't make sense to me because parents have ways of getting their kids to do things that the kids don't want to do. And so, you know, The question that I would ask is, well, do you make your child go to school? What would you do if your child needed life-saving surgery? Would you say, oh, I can't make them go? Are you saying you're an ineffective parent? I mean, because really, when parents say, I can't make my child go, if they, the parent, really want that child to go, they will make that happen. Parents have all sorts of ways of getting their kids to do things kids don't want to do. Now, if there's a problem in that relationship, if that parent is abusive, again, unsafe, unloving, unavailable, really an egregious parent, then the parent should be honest and say, I don't want my kid visiting that parent because I don't think they're a good parent. And here's, you know, here's my evidence of that. But otherwise, to say, I want them to go, but I can't make them, I kind of, I generally am suspicious of that. Mm -hmm. And I think, "Mm, really, you could get them to go. 
And how do you work with parents if they're in that cycle already? So let's say, you know, you've got parents where that that sort of behavior is going on. How do you work with a parent to recognize their power in that situation? Well, I think, you know, I think it really depends on how conflicted and how conscious this, uh, how conflicted the relationship is. There, again, I'm dealing with sort of cases where relationship is really broken down. Ideally, if you start to sense that the other parent is undermining your relationship with the kids, the first thing, of course, you have to look at yourself. Am I doing something that's making my child not want to be with me? And you can even talk to the child like, I'm concerned about our relationship. I'm noticing you seem a little hesitant to come. How can I make this time together better? So you have to start by looking at yourself, not just pointing the finger at the other parent. Mm -hmm. But let's say you've gone through that process and then you really do think, you know, I really think the other parent is undermining me. You can start by asking that other parent, like, am I doing something that's making you uncomfortable sending your, you know, our kids back to me? Is there, do you have any concerns? Is there, do you feel that I'm not paying enough attention to them or whatever? So again, you can start with the collaborative approach. And a lot of times people can kind of adjust and say, oh, gee, I didn't realize I was undermining and, and, you know, I thought it was helpful to give the kids a choice whether to visit you or not. But now I realize that giving them a choice is actually creating pressure on them. But let's say you've gone through that. You've looked at yourself, you've talked to your kid, you've talked to the other parent, and still it's not working. And the other parent is still, you know, rescuing the child from you, letting them come back to them on your parenting time, calling you by their first name. You know, they have a new significant other who they're referring to as mom or dad. I mean, if you're if you're already sort of down that road, you probably you know, you probably need help from a legal or mental health professional to intervene and advocate for you to try to bring the family back into adjustment. Sometimes that can happen through mental health professionals. And sometimes, again, going up the sort of conflict scale, there are times when you do need an attorney and you need somebody to advocate for you in the legal system to enforce the parenting schedule. You talk about, you know, empowering children as well in some of your work. And I know in your book, Getting Through My Parents' Divorce, the one that's aimed at teenagers, you point to some critical skills that teens can develop in order to stay out of conflict in their parents' divorce. Talk me through some of those. Sure. And I do want to say that book is actually for middle school kids. So it's like nine to 14. So, and I think that these are skills as I've sort of honed my, you know, my coaching practice with parents, I think a lot of these skills, really, you can start from a very early age. Mm. And, you know, you use the word empowering, and I guess I would say empowering kids to know their truth, not empowering them to cut off a parent. So mm. sometimes the word empowering is used in different ways. I don't believe that a child should have the power to cut a parent out of their life. Unless, again, that parent is abusive, in which case, then yes, I think they do need to be able to protect themselves. But the premise of the book, Getting Through My Parents' Divorce, is that all kids feel a loyalty conflict when their two beloved parents don't get along with each other, and that it's our job as the adults to help them develop the skills to stay out of the conflict. That sometimes kids think they want to have that power to choose, but it's actually a burden. 
Sometimes they think they have the right to know information. You know, did mom or dad have an affair or whatever? That information is actually a burden. And what we want to do is protect kids and teach them the skills to basically, if I had to sum up the whole book, it would be mom, dad, I love you both. Keep me out of it. Like, that's really the point of the book is to teach kids a host of skills that will ultimately help them tell their parents, I love you both. I do not want to be in the middle. I plan to have a relationship with you both. That's really what we want kids to be able to say, because sadly, the parents can't always say that, right? If the parents were both saying that to the kid, we know you love both of us. We're not getting along right now, but we each support your relationship with the other one. Then you wouldn't really need this book. So the book is really for kids whose parents are intentionally or otherwise drawing them into the conflict, wanting the kid to ally with them against the other parent. And so I think there are six or seven skills that we try to teach kids in the book. One is thinking for yourself, right? Teaching the kids, know your own truth so that if one parent tries to convince you that the other parent doesn't love you, you know, sometimes a parent, let's say it's the mom and the dad has left the the marriage, the mom might say something like, well, if dad really loved us, he wouldn't have left, right? Sort of conflating the end of the marriage with the parent rejecting the child. When Let's say that's not the intention. Let's say the dad is, you know, saying, look, I'm not happy in this marriage. I want a divorce. That doesn't mean the parent wants to divorce the child, but the rejected parent might want to encourage the child to think, oh, daddy doesn't love us anymore. And I'm just using mom and dad in this particular scenario, but we know it works both ways. The dad might say, well, if mom really loved us, she wouldn't have gotten married to somebody else or whatever. So what we want is for kids to resist being influenced to believe that a parent is unsafe, unloving, and unavailable when that's not true. So we want to teach kids, how do you know your truth? And so one of the things that I encourage parents to do, aside from giving their kid this book, is when their kid makes a declaration, even if it's one you agree with, like cheating is wrong, rather than saying, oh, I'm so glad you know cheating is wrong, you know, good girl for knowing that, to say, what an interesting idea. How did you come to that? To encourage kids to question authority and to sort of test their beliefs against facts and against, you know, truth, so that they will be less likely to be unduly influenced to think that a parent doesn't love them when that's not the case. So that's one skill, we call it thinking for yourself, but really it's critical thinking skills. The next is considering your options. We know a lot of these kids get into trouble when a parent sort of pressures them, call your mother right now and tell her you don't want her coming to your party You know, just because she paid for it doesn't mean she has a right to be there and you don't feel comfortable with your mother being there, right? So you need to call her right now and tell her not to come. A lot of times these kids feel pressure in the moment to comply with what a parent is doing. And what we want to do is help kids pause before they just give in to that pressure. They consider their options. One of the things we teach in the book is there's usually more than one option. There's usually multiple ways to handle a situation and to consider your options. 
So one of the things I teach my parents in the coaching, when their child comes to them with a problem, not to just tell them the solution, but to say, ah, sounds like you're kind of worried, you know, that you're going to fail your math test. What's your plan? What are some things you're considering doing to create in the child an understanding that there are usually multiple ways to handle any situation? And you don't have to do the first thing that comes into your mind. And you don't have to do something just because somebody else is pressuring you to do it. And you can see, obviously, how this would be helpful for peer pressure. It's not just pressure from a parent. So there's sort of multiple benefits. So another sort of big emphasis in the book is having a set of core values. And one of the things that I focus on in my coaching is three values in particular, forgiveness, compassion, and integrity. Each one is highly relevant for loyalty conflict situations. And if we can teach kids to value forgiveness and value compassion and value integrity, and there's lots of ways to do that to help nurture that value in a child. If children do value that in themselves, yes, I'm a person who believes in forgiveness. I'm a person who believes in compassion. It's going to be a lot less likely that the child is going to cut off a parent. So I know we might be running out of time, but I'm just sort of going through some of the some of the skills that we try to teach kids in those books. And even if you don't have the book, there are ways to teach those skills to kids just through how you interact with your child. If you role model for your child compassion or forgiveness, if your child hurts your feelings and you say, I forgive you because it will be better for our relationship. I'm going to let go of that. So you can demonstrate forgiveness or notice when your child is exhibiting it and comment on it rather than saying, oh, you're so good for sharing that cookie with your child, you know, with your sister, you could say, wow, I noticed your sister was really annoying you this morning. And still, you're sharing your cookie, you're showing forgiveness. You know, I'm noticing that in you. So there are ways to cultivate these values in kids, whether you have the book or not, to help protect them from becoming alienated. So it's almost like a two-pronged approach. You have the recognition in the adults, but then you've got the protective factors of the kids as well. It sounds like a book that's well worth getting for anybody navigating a divorce, even if it's kind of not as high conflict as um, as the material is meant to deal with, because they sound like very positive strategies for building resilient kids. I could not agree more. I think each of the six or seven skills that we're teaching, considering your options, thinking for yourself, encouraging yourself, acting with courage, doing the right thing, even though it's hard. This is what we want for all kids. It just happens to be particularly relevant for helping kids navigate a conflicted divorce. But these are values and skills that will help kids throughout their life in other situations. Amy, yes, we are coming towards the end of time, but I just wanted to squeeze in one last question about working with adults and improving communication to strengthen that co-parenting relationship. Can you share um, some advice on how you can improve communication with your ex when you're going through or the divorce or you're out the other side and you're co-parenting your children? Yeah, so... I see a lot of emails that parents write to each other, and it is definitely a problem area that people are impulsive 
and reactive sometimes when they're sending an email. And one of the things that I say is, you know, whether it's talking on the phone or an email, assume that the other parent is going to show this to your child, assume that it could end up in front of a judge and imagine, you know, that that sort of is your, you know, sitting on your shoulder at all times, looking over your shoulder at what you're writing. And that should help people. I mean, just, I literally teach people the most basics, like start every email with hi in the person's name, you know, because it doesn't feel good to get an email that just without that pleasantry and to try to say something nice. I hope you're having a good day. I hope you're staying dry with this storm coming. And then you describe, I mean, most of the time people are communicating in a unhelpful way when they think the other parent has done something that they don't like. You know, and so I teach them how to describe what the other parent did in very neutral terms and to start by saying, it's my understanding that, and then you describe what it is. You took Johnny to the doctor without informing me, which wouldn't be okay most of the time, or it's my understanding that you're referring to me by my first name to the kids or whatever, whatever it is with no you know, inflammatory language or anything like that. And then you ask for clarification. Could you please let me know if I am understanding this correctly? And then, you know, thank you for your time. Like just very brief and friendly without any of the inflammatory, you know, once again, you have behaved badly, you know, and I often encourage people to write two versions of the email. One, they're not going to send. It's just the venting, you son of a whatever. I can't believe you once again did this thing that, you know, what are you trying to do? Ruin our kids, you know, and then they write the one that they're actually going to send. Um, parents in these situations are so reactive. They're easily triggered. It's the most you know, the, the fear that somebody is hurting your child or turning your child against you is a very impactful, important, horrendous experience. It's very, very high stakes and people are often not thinking clearly. Mm. And they and, and again, I just tell them, if you write a nasty email, it will show up in front of the judge and you will lose credibility. If you say something bad about your child, The other parent is going to show the child and then that reinforces the message that you don't love your child. Yeah, but also it escalates it, doesn't it? If you send a really rubbish email to somebody, they're going to send one back if you're in that conflict situation. So I always say to people, you're trying to minimize the amount of back and forth and you get rid of all those adjectives. And (laughs) I always tell people to think about what they would think if they were writing asking the same thing of a friend who'd made a mistake or a relative that they, you know, clearly loved that had made a mistake and would they be putting it in those tones? Because I think just trying to think of it from a different person's perspective can be quite helpful. It's all very brilliant advice and thank you. I can't thank you enough for your time. Where can people find out a bit more about you? Well, I have a website. It's just my name, you know, www.amyjlbaker.com. And, you know, information about my books is there, my coaching. I'm not actually accepting any new expert witness cases right now, but I'm focusing primarily on coaching parents going through this at every stage, still married, separated, divorced. The kids are 2, 12, 20, 40. I have parents who have been cut off from their kids, and I will help them write a letter to try to reconnect with their adult child who's cut them off. So I try to help people at all 
all stages of this process. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you. So if people can go to the website, they can purchase the books, they can find out more about this topic. Yeah, and they can eat my email addresses there. That's how most people reach me. Amy, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. And of course, you can find out more about me at uh, on Twitter at Kate underscore daily. Hear more about the podcast episodes that are coming up by following at divorce underscore podcast. And you can also subscribe to this podcast and look for updates by visiting the divorcepodcast.com. Amy Baker, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. <laughs>